Welcome back to the program. So many weaknesses of our media today are blamed on the digital revolution. Certainly the transition to digital has rendered change, but to a large extent, those changes only magnify some of the fundamental flaws that have afflicted American media as it evolved in the 20th century. The weakening of regulation, the increased power of the free market to shape coverage of news, and the increasing conflation of news and entertainment all add to the mix. Today, those forces combined with the impact of technology has, for better or worse, created a landscape that some would argue is antithetical to even the minimal requirements of a democratic society. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Victor Picard. He's an assistant professor in the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. He was a senior research fellow at the media reform organization Free Press and the public policy think tank The New American Foundation. It is my pleasure to welcome Victor Picard here to talk about his book, America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. Victor, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. Great to have you here. One of the things that you write about early on in the book is that so much of the media landscape that we inhabit today really is as a result of decisions that were made, regulations that were put in place, and philosophies that were put in place back in the 1940s, that that was really the seminal period for all of this. Talk about that first. Yes, I think you just said it better than I probably can, but that's exactly what happened in the 1940s when, of course, at that time, the new media, or I should say newish media, was commercial radio, and the FCC, as well as society writ large, was trying to determine what the role of radio should be in a democratic society, how should it be managed, should it be given over to what was at that time a handful of corporations, not unlike today, and, uh, and essentially trying to come up with the regulatory philosophy for the American media system. And a lot of things that were that we sort of take for granted today that we might assume was somewhat inevitable or natural, many questions about how, how media should be regulated were still open-ended at that time. And one of the fundamental ideas that really was at the core of all of that was this notion that the airways, that the way in which signals would be transmitted, that the airwaves belonged to the public and that there was a public policy responsibility in that. Absolutely. So it sounds like a slogan that the air belongs to the people, but it, it was true then, it's still true today, and in fact it served as a kind of rallying cry for a rising media reform movement as they were trying to fight over the meaning of this kind of social contract between the public, government, and media institutions, in particular radio broadcasters, and basically determining what do those broadcasters owe the public in return for having essentially monopolistic use of the public airways. What do they give back to the public. They were making tremendous profits on this public resource. So what kinds of returns should society see? And this is what the FCC was trying to figure out. They were trying to, uh, well, first they were trying to actually break up some of the monopolies. Um, but then as kind of a second strategy, they were trying to mandate very uh, strict and meaningful social responsibilities for broadcasters. Was there a fundamental flaw 
in that approach. Was that the correct approach in, in retrospect, or should it have been handled differently, do you think? Well, I think, and of course, things always seem much clearer in retrospect, but I believe, and I think history bears this out, that if you turn the clock back just a little bit earlier to uh, debates in the early 30s about the fundamental nature of American broadcasting, radio in particular, whether it should be owned and controlled by the public uh, through, through government or whether it should be handed over primarily to these private commercial interests. And we know how that turned out. The, the latter model is the one that prevailed. We didn't end up with something more like the BBC. And, um, and so in many ways, the battles that were being fought out, the policy debates that were happening in the 1940s were kind of second, they were sort of dealing with the symptoms um, arising from a commercial media system, particularly one that's dominated by, again, a handful of corporations. So you do see this larger trajectory where we could have had a more structural uh, solution, and then gradually we're dealing with, with, uh, with symptoms of this bigger problem. But at least in, at least in the early 40s, they were still, they were essentially trust-busting some of these monopolies. I mean, they, they actually broke, the FCC broke up NBC, uh, which is fairly inconceivable for us to consider today. Would we have been better off, looking at it again in retrospect, would we have been better off to allow the market to just do what it wanted to do, but at the same time use public dollars to create something like the BBC, to create a public broadcast institution that really took on all of these other objective responsibilities? That's a great question, and in some ways, we did ultimately do something like that with the foundation of public broadcasting in the late 60s and early 70s, but that system has never been funded adequately enough so that we could have something like the BBC, like uh, a public media system that most democratic societies take for granted. So uh, in many ways, we did kind of let the market do uh, what it wants, um, and uh, and we really didn't build this sort of this public uh, option, if you will. I mean, there were there were some alternative models. For example, the Pacifica Radio Network also came out of the 1940s. So I think that's an example of some of a alternative vision that was being considered at this time in the 40s. But overall, we ended up with a highly commercialized system, and that's the one that we're still continue with today. And as we look at all of this in the context, as the context for where we are today, does it have real relevance given that the idea of over-the-air broadcasting is something that is almost becoming a kind of quaint anachronism? <laughs> well, it's, of course, ironic that we're uh, calling it a quaint anachronism here uh, on the airwaves, but um, <clears throat> I think it's a good question. But what I would suggest is that even though this idea that we were using the public airwaves was the cornerstone of this kind of public, what's often referred to as a public trustee model, uh, I think we should be thinking of our media system in general as a public good. And that means that the market, uh, I mean, just by definition, public goods are not uh, well supported by the market. There's something that society requires, but the market cannot produce in sufficient amounts or sufficient quality. So 
I think if we shift the debate and think of the public good nature of our media, especially our news media, our, our, our information system, uh, that puts us in a better position to try to figure out ways to create alternative models. Isn't this at the core of what we're talking about with respect to net neutrality? I mean, it's the same conversation that took place with respect to, to the airwaves. Yes. So I draw that parallel frequently uh, in, in my work. In fact, in my book's conclusion, I, I talk a fair amount about net neutrality and, and other broadband-related policy issues. And you're absolutely right that whereas in the 40s, the main communication infrastructure that society was fighting over was radio. Today, it's clearly the Internet. And again, the FCC is in the middle of these policy battles. Again, society is trying to figure out what should the role of this media system be in a democratic society. And I think there's also, you felt this anguish in the 40s, and I think you're feeling some of that today, that there's a sense of a lost democratic potential with, with you know, this medium, media system that was meant to democratize, revolutionize society. I think we're beginning to have some misgivings now as our system becomes captured by commercial interests. Of course, one of the key differences today, and it's one of the things that arguably make net neutrality so much more important, is that the barriers to entry are so much lower. It's true to some extent. So although it seems, and we're all familiar with the rhetoric and the reality, that we all can become media producers now, and we, we all have access to so much information. But then that we really has to be unpacked because nearly a third of American households still lack access to broadband Internet services. So we still, even though it sounds like something from the 1990s, we still have this enormous digital divide. And even for those of us that have access to Internet services, often those services are subpar, especially compared to our global competitors. Uh, we're, we have a pretty uh, woeful situation when it comes to American broadband. So there, it, it certainly could be much improved upon. And I think that's, I think we're starting to see those debates now. I mean, you probably have seen uh, President Obama has been coming out on, on a number of these issues, uh, saying that we really need to, to create some new policies to create a new broadband system in this country. One of the things that we couldn't quite imagine in the 1940s, the degree to which entertainment and news have been conflated, and what impact do you think that's had on the way media has evolved? I think it's had a tremendous impact, and even back in the 40s, people were enraged by the proliferation of advertising. There were these uh, terms of derision that people hurled at advertising, calling them plug uglies and singing jingles, these these ads that would interrupt programming. And I think that with each new medium, we're initially quite upset about the intrusion, the invasiveness of, this, of advertising, but we eventually become somewhat desensitized to it. I'm certainly noticing that on Facebook and Twitter, and it seems that it's, it's colonizing many different corners uh, of our media system. But, uh, but, yeah, this conflation of news and entertainment, that it's, 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 it's very problematic. Even today when we're trying to talk about the future of journalism, uh, many people have a hard time to decide exactly what we mean by that. Why should we be concerned? And uh, I think we should be very concerned. One of the things that, that seems like it should be at the core of this discussion 
is what really are the minimal requirements for journalism, for a free press, in order to make a democratic society like ours work even at, at its minimal level? Yes, so that obviously is contentious by its very nature. Who's to decide what those democratic obligations are? But again, going back to the 40s, that was one of the main uh, battles that, that I documented in my book around the FCC Blue Book, uh, where they tried to mandate um, things like broadcasters have to cover a particular amount of public affairs, uh, they have to cover local culture, they have to devote programming uh, to uh, non-commercial uh, non-profits-related uh, subjects, you know, things that aren't being sponsored by, by entities like soap companies, which, of course, is where we get the term soap operas. Uh, so this will always be fought over, but I think at the very least we're noticing today that journalism's not being supported sufficiently, especially as we move on to the web. There's plenty of commentary, but we're actually losing our journalistic media. It's interesting when you think about soap operas because we've replaced that today online with what we call native advertising. I mean, it's, it's truly a classic case of everything old is new again. It, it is. I'm always amazed by how often I rediscover that lesson in my research. But yes, native advertising is something we should be talking more about. Uh, I was just reading a piece today, as a matter of fact, about how the New York Times is planning to do a lot more uh, native advertising and, and branded uh, journalism. And this is a, a gradual shift. And in some ways, uh, you might, you could argue it's even more insidious because at least before we knew when we saw advertisements. And now there really, there's a blurred line between actual news and, and, and advertisements. And I think that's very troubling for a democratic society. Is there a way, and I, and I know you talk about a number of suggestions and, and ideas at the end of the book, but is there a way to have this conversation in the framework of what we're touching on now, the minimal requirements in a democratic society? Can we define that without it getting caught up in the politicization of everything else in our society today? Yes, I think, uh, yes and no. <laughs> I, I think that that's a great question, and it's going to be contentious no matter what, but it really should be. It's a very important debate, and I think the biggest barrier to having um, an open discussion about this question is that people assume that there, that the market will take care of this and that there is no role for government even to create protections. And we're not talking about government determining what news media should do, but to just create the space to, to try to help support, to make sure that there's enough funding and resources for actual journalism. Um, that's, that's a very hard uh, case to make in this time of what I refer to as corporate libertarianism, uh, where we just assume that the First Amendment protects corporations from government um, and, and doesn't take into consideration everyone else's uh, First Amendment rights to diverse information. I mean, it does seem that with the media landscape changing as dramatically as it is as a result of digital technology, that perhaps there is a window, perhaps there is an opportunity to actually have this conversation to relitigate in a positive way, some of those issues that were debated in the 1940s? One would hope, and I tend to be a cautious optimist. I mean, even going back to the, the net neutrality debate, 
seen that nearly 4 million people wrote into the FCC in response to their open Internet rules. And that shows that the public is engaging on these issues. So even though they might sound wonky and technical, I think when the public is aware of what's at stake and that it sees that there are democratic principles uh, in, in being discussed here, that they really do weigh in and engage and can actually shift the trajectory of the debate, as we're seeing with net neutrality. It is interesting in the net neutrality debate, and, and it goes to the heart of some of the things that, that you touch on, that it is corporate libertarianism versus individual libertarianism that really is at the core of the net neutrality debate. Yeah, and that's a key irony to this debate, uh-huh. because... Oftentimes, and I'm, and I'm sympathetic to this view, that we're talking about libertarian freedoms, um, and, and yet there's this conflation of corporate interests in individual freedoms so that corporations are able to say that net neutrality is an infringement on their First Amendment rights. And that ignores not just, even if you don't care about society's welfare, public rights, but what about the individuals who won't be able to access particular websites or might have things blocked online or there or certain services slowed down that sounds to me like an infringement of first amendment rights sounds to me that libertarians should actually be very concerned by that right and and it works the other way too it's not only a question of a freedom to access but it's freedom to program it gets back to this barriers to entry argument that we were talking about earlier you're absolutely right i mean it's actually anti-free market when mm-hmm. you think about it and that's why many small businesses are actually pro net neutrality, so it's often just the the actual the the monopolies and the duopolies, Comcast, Verizon, the big internet service uh, providers, they're the ones that have are, are tend to be more uh, anti net neutrality. Um, although to be fair, Comcast is under some uh, temporary uh, regulations where they have to honor net neutrality, but essentially it's the internet service providers who are against this and stand to gain from a loss of net neutrality. Talk about, coming back to kind of where we started, Victor, how important it is in this debate today about net neutrality, about all of the things that are part of the media discussion today, to really have the grounding in this history that you write about in America's battle for media democracy. Why understanding that 1940s history, for example, is so valuable in having this discussion today? That's an excellent question, and it's one that I'm still fleshing out, but what I'm trying to suggest is that what we learn from the 1940s is what can happen if we lose control of our vital communication infrastructures. And in the 40s, that happened to broadcasting. What had, hoped, what had been hoped to become this great democratic medium was gradually encroached upon by these monopolistic corporate interests. And although the difference was in the 40s, the FCC really did give, put up a pretty strong fight. But again, we're facing that same crossroads today. We're still trying, we're trying to forge a new social contract. And I think that again and again, we learn that we ignore media policy to our own peril. Um, it's something that we must engage with uh, as a public, regardless of what your main issue is. It's almost a cliche, but your second issue should be about changing the media system. And I think that's what we're seeing. Hopefully we're seeing that happen again today. 
Victor Picard. His book is America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. It's just out from Cambridge University Press. Victor, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoy being on the show.